G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media, thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily. Please make your donation today at vision.org.au. Today with Jeff Vines, author, pastor, apologist and Bible teacher with a straight-talking message from the Word. What do you do, folks, when your life does not turn out the way you thought it would? What do you do? Today with Jeff Vines. Hello, my name is Bill. Thanks so much for joining us again on Today with Jeff Vines. In this final message in our series on King David, Pastor Jeff is unpacking what sovereignty really means. He's looking at what happened towards the end of King David's life and rule when life turned out differently to what David had planned. You can turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 15. Let's hear from Pastor Jeff now. On Today with Jeff Vines. Well, I had one of those weeks where I met a lot of people who would have appreciated change in their lives. I went to McDonald's this past week, last of the big spenders I am. With my son Delaney, we had breakfast. Son, I'll take you to breakfast. He wants to go to, you know, Flappy Jacks. Son, let's go to McDonald's. We went to McDonald's. We're uh, seated there eating, and a young girl, about 15 years old, comes in, and she heads right for the Playland. 15. And she's enamored with the Playland. 15. Looking at the, you know, paintings on the walls and the balloons and little tables and chairs, even the colored balls in the Playland itself, the area. And then she turns where I can see her face to face and she's Down syndrome. And I looked over, gazed over, and her mother was there. And you could see the look in her mother's eyes. Joy, love, sees her daughter as a precious gift, the whole thing, just watching her and the sense of wonder that she hasn't lost, that so many of us do. But then pastors know these things. There's also kind of intertwined and mixed in with all that is a look of of pain because she knows that for her daughter to make her mark on the world, she's going to have to overcome a lot of obstacles. So you saw all of that. I I went from there to coffee clash. My son went on to work, go over to have my coffee because I don't drink McDonald's coffee. (laughs) And my wife calls me a coffee snob. So I go over to go over to coffee clash and then I pick up the Los Angeles times and I see the headline, two-year-old falls at Staples, the last Sunday's Laker game. A two-year-old boy died when he fell five stories, 50 feet. And I started to read the article and I thought, oh man, this is going to be sad. But I really appreciate it. It was sad. appreciated the way the author approached it. He called the, and I quote, the most important thing that has ever happened at Staples Center. 
I thought, man, what's he mean by that? And I kept reading. He said, what happened last Sunday was more important than a Magic Johnson running hook shot, more important than Kareem Abdul-Jabbar scoring record, more important than a three-peat by the Lakers. And I thought, wow, this is a different take from the media here. I keep reading. And he goes on, and the whole article is about the value of human life, that it is more important than anything else. I thought, wow. But I bet there's a mom who will never forget November 21st. And if she could just go back just a few minutes before the fall, I bet you she'd change things. Then that, I came to work, and then that night, I go back to coffee class. Now, I know it sounds bad, but I'm over at coffee class. Got a meeting there at night, and as I'm pulling out, there's a homeless guy on a bicycle. And I don't know why, you know, who knows why you decide there's something inside you that prompts you. So I pulled up beside him, hey man, how are you? You okay? Oh, he was shocked. Got off his bike, yeah, yeah. And I went out, got out of the car and talked to him. About a half an hour and it was cold. He never once asked me for money. He just appreciated the fact that somebody acknowledged his existence. And we talked about everything. My friend Dave Allgaard, down in Savannah, Georgia, who works among the homeless, told me that after four or five years of working with him, he learned that most of these guys are past CEOs, managing directors, business owners who had some traumatic event happen in their lives, a divorce, the loss of a child, bankruptcy, whatever. And the only way they knew how to deal with it was to leave everything that resembled the past life and live out on the streets. And all they want and I know it's not easy because most of us don't know what to do when we're around. We don't because it's so different. And I, I'm not criticizing that except for the fact that this guy was so grateful that somebody just acknowledged he, that he, he was alive. And I wondered if I could go back and look at what changed, what happened. Where, I wish I could go back. Like the movie Click, you know, just click. And there you are. And you could see the events that were leading up. As a pastor... Here's the question I want to ask, and I want to ask it calmly. What do you do, folks, when your life does not turn out the way you thought it would? What do you do? This is where we find David now. It's the end. And I want you to imagine this in 2 Samuel. I want you to imagine. We're not going to read it yet. David. He's riding on a donkey outside of Jerusalem. And those loyal supporters, few and far between now, are going with him. And I want you to put this in the context now of your life. What do you do when, when the love of your life leaves you, when a son is lost on the battlefield, when the tumor is not benign, when the disease is spreading, when, when everything's just falling, when, when dreams don't come true, what do you do? Because David is on the donkey and his dreams are not coming true. He's got a promise from God, and he feels like, God, you promised me that my name would be great. Through the lineage would come the Messiah, that Israel would go past survival into thriving. But now here I am, and Absalom's favorite, or, or David's favorite son, Absalom, that he hoped would one day take over the throne, is now marching into the city of Jerusalem with his armies, wanting to do one thing and one thing only, kill David and destroy his regime and take over power. And as David's riding on the donkey, as you come to 2 Samuel 15, I'm summing it up for you. David's thinking to himself, man, my life, it's not turning out the way I thought. My hopes and dreams are all shattered because he knows he's in a no-win scenario. Number one, if he stays and fights, which he could, Jerusalem will be destroyed. 
because the armies of Absalom will fight the armies of David and the city will be laid waste. And as soon as that happens, the Philistines who are just waiting for an opportunity like this, they will come in and finish the job and Israel will be no more. But he knows if he stays and fights as well, that one of three things is going to happen. Either David's going to die, Absalom's going to die, or both are going to die. And then if David's army does defeat Absalom, his favorite son, even in the midst of this, he loves his son. He's going to be placed in the precarious position of having to execute his own son. Because there would have been many men who die for David and sacrifice their lives to defeat the armies of Absalom. David will have no choice but to kill his own son. So he's leaving the city, packing everything up, leaving Jerusalem. And I promise you, as he's riding that donkey, he's thinking to himself, I know we, we know he is by the text. My hopes and my dreams are shattered. Where on earth is God? Now, I'm going to do something I never get to do. Talk slowly. No, I'm going to, I'm going to do something here that I have written into sermons in the past that I just keep taking out because of time. I want to do something because for those of you who are on a journey and you're skeptical about this whole Christian faith and you, you, you consider yourself maybe even an agnostic at this point, here's what they say. Hey, you know what, Jeff, maybe it's time for David to have a life-defining experience and realize that he's on his own and that's all he's ever going to be. That when your life stinks, it's just another proof that God does not exist. David might think he's got somebody with him, but there's nobody with him. God is not real. And this whole thing about God is just a delusion. And religion is the opium of the people. Our belief in God is to give us a spiritual buzz so that we can live in denial that life stinks from dust back to dust and a lot of pain and suffering in between. So maybe this would have been the time as David's riding outside of Jerusalem and he's been asking God for something that he's not gotten. Maybe this is the time for him to just come clean and be honest. There is no God. You're on your own. That's all you're ever going to be. This is proof again. Now, there are a few problems with that line of thinking. I want to uh, approach it respectfully, but that kind of thinking is utterly and truly not only self-defeating, but entirely illogical. And here's the reason why. No matter how bad your life is, you still have not explained the source of first cause. You still have not explained how you can get something from nothing. Now, stay with me just for a moment. Now, what I'm about to do in the next five to eight minutes, some of your eyes are going to gloss over, but some of you are going to love it. And if you'll just be patient, there'll be one sentence I say that will... Straighten up the whole thing, okay? But I want to go to Stephen Hawking's book called The Grand Design. The problem with his book called The Grand Design, and don't let that fool you because the book is about anything but that. I think that's a marketing ploy. Before, Hawking has always said that we don't know origin. We just don't know, but if we could discover origin, then we would know the meaning and purpose of our lives. We would know if we are determined or if we are free, and we would have the answer to life's most penetrating questions. But this book is different now. In this book, he comes out seemingly and says, there is no need for God. And I, I don't want you to be scared as a Christian because I've gotten all kinds of emails. They, what about this? What if the smartest man in the world says there's no God? Two things. Number one, remember marketing is a powerful tool. Okay. And number two, just because you're really, really smart doesn't mean you know everything. Because I want to give to you the premise of the book and show you what happens when a scientist tries to become a philosopher. Here is what he says, because there is no law of gravity, the universe can and will create itself out of nothing. 
Now, I want you to leave that on the screen for a moment, and I want you to notice the triple self-contradiction in one statement. I've seen double contradictions, but never three in one statement. He says, because there is the law of gravity, the universe can and will create itself out of nothing. Contradiction one, the law of gravity is not nothing. Okay? The law of gravity is not nothing. He says, because the law of gravity, the universe can and will create itself out of nothing. Two, creation will create itself. How does that work exactly? Let me ask you this. What if I told you I want you to create yourself? That would presuppose you already exist, correct? Now, if he changed that word to because there is the law of gravity, the universe can and will recreate itself. That's another statement and we could have a foundation upon which to build arguments, except for the fact, the final three words, out of nothing. How do you make something out of nothing? How can you get something out of nothing? And third, self-contradiction. The law of gravity, folks, assumes the preexistence of a natural law. Got it? Once you admit the law of gravity, you're admitting the preexistence of natural law. This is exactly what Larry King said to Hawking on Larry King Live. He said, Dr. Hawking, wait a minute. From where did the law of gravity come? To which he received no practical explanation. The silence was deafening. Because Sir Isaac Newton, who knew something about gravity, said that the natural law or the law of gravity could never create anything. It simply explained what had already been created. Now, folks, I could go on and on, and I know some of you think, please don't. <laughs> but one other thing, actually two, Hawking says near the end of the book, he said, our universe appears to be fine-tuned. This is not easily explained. It could lead us to a grand designer. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, it appears, if you take all the evidence, that the universe has been designed. But we know it's not. Amazing. Oh, if it, you know, you ever heard the phrase, if it looks like a duck, talks like a duck, walks like a duck, it's probably a duck. If it looks like design, acts like design, it's probably design. Then why would one of the smartest men who've ever lived not come out and say, I think we have a grand designer because there is a pre-commitment to atheism. Once you're committed to atheism, no matter how much information you receive, it's not going to change your mind. You're just going to juggle it, reevaluate it and stack it up to support what you yourself have resigned to believe. Let me show you how bad it gets. Near the very end of the book, he says, only, now look at this. Now, some of you guys who are, are great at abstract thought, look at this for a moment. Only scientific statements can be trusted to define and explain reality. Do you see what is fundamentally wrong with this statement? It, that statement itself is not a scientific statement. He's using a philosophical statement to say that only scientific statements can be trusted. That's like me taking a blue pen and writing statements written in blue cannot be trusted. <laughs> Self-contradicting. Then how can you trust my statement? I wrote it in blue. See, some of you are just glossing over right now. <laughs> Others of you are thinking, yeah, I like this. The problem is this, folks. Science can tell us a lot about how and a lot about what. And science is not the enemy to faith. The more we discover, the more we learn about God. But science cannot tell us the why. <coughs> the other thing is, if you walk away from God and say, because my life stinks and it's not turned out the way I thought it would, I think, I, I, I think I'm just, I don't believe there's a God. That, that's just proof there's no God. There's another problem. If there is no God, then what are you upset about? Because if there's no God, you're the product of atheistic evolution. 
which means time plus matter plus chance, you're a freak accident, folks. And if you're a freak accident, there's no purpose to your life, no meaning. Dust to dust, that's it. Everything in between is just bad luck. So when bad things happen, wrong place, wrong time, right? This is what amazes me when I read this article in the Los Angeles Times from this author in the secular media who talks about the value of human life. But the same author, I guarantee you, if he heard somebody say we should start teaching creation in the public schools of America, would be outraged. But you can have intrinsic worth without creation. If we're the product of atheistic evolution, there is no purpose or meaning to your life, folks. You got that, right? As a matter of fact, for those of you who are experiencing great pain, embrace it and accept it. And would you please die so the strength of the gene pool can continue? <laughs> That's the whole point. The survival of the fittest. You're obviously not fit, so stop trying to survive. <laughs> My only point is that the no God option is not truly a legitimate option when your life stinks. It's not. Now there's a whole other list of arguments we can bring to bear, but I want to shift to the Christian now for a moment. He takes a different point of view. He travels a different road. We say that God created the world and the fine tuning of this universe demands a designer and that God has created to us through his son, Jesus Christ, who has been validated by his miracles and the resurrection, proving to us the depth of the love of God when he went to the cross to die for our sins. And now, Emmanuel, God is with us. God has come near. That God is omnipresent. That he's fully present in our lives. And that just doesn't mean that God can be in Los Angeles, Dallas, and Atlanta at the same time. It means that he can be fully in each of those places at the same time. Which means he can be fully involved in your life while be fully involved in my life. It doesn't mean that he has to say, Jeff, I'm over here right now. I'll get to you later. He's fully involved in all of our lives at the same time. And yet, when, us, when we as Christians and our life doesn't turn out the way we want or something bad happens to us, we take another road. It's not what we treat God like dad who doesn't give us what we want. So we don't stop believing in dad. We just get really ticked at him. And we start saying things like this. Is this the way it's going to work with you and me, God? I've obeyed you in everything and this is how things turned out. What's the use, man? I mean, I honored you. Can't you honor me? I was faithful to my husband and he still cheated on me. How about that? I honored you, God. Look how things turned out. I've remained sexually pure like you asked me to. And then 30, 40, now it's 50 years old. I still have no man. I still have no woman. I honored you. How about a partner for life? And by the way, God, I refused that job. I could have made a lot of money, but I turned it down because I knew they may require me to do things that were unethical. And now I'm still hungry and I need some money. So God, if that's the best you can do, man, I can, I can make this kind of disaster running my own life. So forget you, God. I got an email this past week from a guy who was livid. Just pages and pages of, I hate God. I'm angry at God because I've honored him. I've tried to do what he asked me to do and I still don't have a woman. And he's mad because he feels he's entitled to that and God owes him that. And so many Christians at this point, all right, God, this is the way it's going to be. All right, then forget you. After all I've done for you, my prayers and my faithfulness, my perfect record of church attendance, and this is all I get, I could have gotten this result running my own life. So I'm out of here. And here's the concept. Here's the thought. What's the benefit of remaining faithful when I feel like I'm always losing God, if this is the best you can do by controlling things, I'm taking control back over. Forget you, God. Oh, God, I can get a wife. It may not be the wife you like, but I can get me a wife. And I can get me a man. Believe me, I know what it takes. I can get a man. It may not be the man you want me to have, but I can get me a man. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I can get me a job. 
It may not be the job you want for me, and I might have to do unethical things, but it's good work if you can get it, and you can get it if you try. <laughs> Folks, you're saying, God, if you're not on my team, or is this the best you can do? I'm going to get my own team. Now, here, here's what's ironic. So while we have Christians, their lives don't turn out the way they expect them to, and they run away from God, then I meet a whole other group of people who are far from God, and when they experience tragedy, they run to God. Big guy down in New Zealand, big basketball player, just a huge guy, huge guy. And everybody on the team, man, this guy's like 6'8", 250, just an unbelievable talent. And all the other players on the team when I was coaching in New Zealand thought, man, this guy has no problems. His life is perfect. Man, we wish our lives were like this guy, famous everything. One night after a, a tournament game we had won, the locker room empties. It's only he and I left in the room. And I think he planned it that way. And he walked over to me and he said, hey, Jeff, man, can I talk to you a moment? I said, sure, man, what's up? He broke down, this mountain of a man falls on his knees, breaks down, just starts weeping and talks about how he's estranged from his mom and dad. He never can please his dad. His marriage is on the rocks. He doesn't know what he's going to do after basketball. I'm not getting any older, Jeff, and I got nowhere to go after this. I'm going to be destitute, poor. I'm going to be on the street. Jeff, please help me. And you know what he did that night in the next half hour? He bowed his head and received Christ as his savior. That's what he did. And you know why? Because he said, Jeff, I'm the captain of the team, but I got nobody to captain my life. Help me, I need a captain. Yeah. So people who are Christians get ticked to God and run away, while people who are far from God, tragedy strikes, they run to God. I met a lady over at Pomona while we were doing our outreach over there, and the mayor of the city of Pomona came out and thanked the church for its ministry to the community. And this lady said, Pastor Jeff, I've been wanting to talk to you. I never can talk to you. She goes, I've been praying for this guy for 30 years. And finally, just recently, he became a Christian. I said, great, tell me the story. Well, I don't know what story to tell you other than I prayed and he never would. And then all of a sudden, he discovered he was a diabetic, had gallbladder uh, bladder problems, a heart condition. And next thing you know, next thing we know, he's bowing his head and receiving Christ. Interesting, isn't it? It took a lot of trouble. Isn't it interesting? It's right there at that point when life is falling apart. It's not turning out the way you thought it would that some people far from God run to him while others walk away. We need to pause there for today. We'll continue this message next time. Pastor Jeff will keep considering what sovereignty really means. Why would I ever do that? Why did David do it? Because he knows God is supremely in control and he knows that God knows what he's doing and he knows that God is good. So he says, I'm not fighting it anymore. Today with Jeff Vines. For more from Pastor Jeff, head to vision.org.au forward slash Jeff Vines. Today with Jeff Vines. Just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.